Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today we're joined by Elaine Heath, Academy faculty, Upper Room books author, and so much more. Elaine's scholarly work is interdisciplinary, integrating pastoral, biblical, and spiritual theology in ways that bridge the gap between academy, church, and world. Her current research interests focus on community as a means of healing trauma, emergent forms of Christianity, and alternative forms of theological education for the church in rapidly changing contexts. Elaine is the author of numerous books and articles, the most recent of which is Healing the Wounds of Sexual Abuse, Reading the Bible with Survivors, a republication with updates of a previous volume, We Were the Least of These, Reading the Bible with Survivors of Sexual Abuse. She also has a new book being released this summer entitled The Healing Practice of Celebration. Her other publications include Five Means of Grace, The Mystic Way of Evangelism, God Unbound, Missional Monastic Mainline, Longing for Spring, and Naked Faith, The Mystic Theology of Phoebe Palmer. Heath's vocational journey includes having served as Dean of the Divinity School at Duke University and the McCrellis Professor of Evangelism at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist University. She is a pioneer in new forms of theological education. In that capacity, Heath is co-founder of the Missional Wisdom Foundation, and more recently, she co-founded Neighborhood Seminary, a contextualized model of missional theological education for laity. Elaine is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church and served in pastoral ministry prior to her academic ministry. She lives with her husband at Spring Forest, an intentional Christian community and farm in rural North Carolina, where she serves as abbess. Because we're finding new ways to connect and listen and converse with one another in the midst of this global pandemic, know that the sound quality of our conversation may not be what you're used to hearing. In fact, at some point in the conversation, Elaine and I are joined by the sound of her dog barking, what I like to call a sound of the times. Zoom, of course, has become our trusted companion in these times of social distancing and staying home, and we're grateful it helps us capture these holy and healing conversations right now. Be on the lookout for more discussions with Academy leaders and faculty in the days and weeks ahead. What follows is a conversation with Elaine about what is needed from us as spiritual leaders for these times, what it means to neighbor well, the profound and sound theology of Julian of Norwich, and so much more. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for being with us today on the Academy podcast. It's wonderful to see your face and just excited to talk with you and hear more of your wisdom. And so thanks for being with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Well, I always like to get started hearing a little bit more about you and who you are, where you come from. And I'd love to know a little bit about the geographical landscape of your faith uh, and what 
what that means to you and, and looks like, smells like. So tell us a little bit more about that. I thought that was a wonderful way to phrase it, the geographical landscape of my faith, um, partly because geography really does affect my faith. And um, we live at Spring Forest. It's a, a farm and a forest in uh, rural North Carolina in the Piedmonts. So think rolling hills, soaring pine trees. Uh, we can grow crops year round, partly out in the fields and partly in our hoop house. And we have chickens and ducks and dogs. So part of my faith and its landscape is tending the land uh, and being very much grounded in the seasons that come and go. And um, since I have retired from Duke Divinity School where I, where I served as dean, um, I have more space in my schedule now, and especially since the coronavirus, I have much more space in my schedule to engage in the sort of contemplative days and hours that are very meaningful to me. And so the landscape of my faith includes walking through the forest. It includes noticing the sunrise and the sunset every day and being in touch with the weather, um, the very homely tasks of daily life rhythms of prayer by myself and with my husband and community. Um, that's, that's the landscape for my faith right now. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I have relationships with people around the world that I cherish and across the country that I cherish. So thanks to technology, I'm able to stay in touch with a range of people uh, for prayer, for spiritual formation, for friendship and, um, ongoing support for people and for ourselves from others and that is also part of the landscape of my faith is the cyber landscape hmm. were you really well acquainted with the cyber landscape and being connected in these ways before the pandemic or has this ushered in something new uh, no, I was very familiar with it. Uh, I, I've been an advocate for using technology to the full extent in ministry um, forever. And I've taught classes online. And of course, uh, Neighborhood Seminary, uh, we're, we're doing some things online now. And Missional Wisdom Foundation has had an online component to its educational programs from the beginning. So none of this is new to me. Um, I guess the part that's new is uh, having to use Zoom or something like that for so many conversations like we're having today. Right. You know, gatherings, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Johnny, you know, our, my colleague, and of course he and I sometimes just say, let's just talk on the phone like we used to, you know, like we don't have to FaceTime or, Zoom, you know, and that's been kind of nice to just pick up the phone and, and actually have a normal conversation like the old times. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, where did you grow up? Uh, did you grow up? In I grew North Carolina? Up. Or, yeah. No, no. Um, uh, interestingly enough, my, on my father's side of the family, we have a long lineage in North Carolina where our ancestor is the first governor of North Carolina, uh, Sir Robert. Oh, wow. Um, but I didn't grow up here. I grew up mostly in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. So Oregon, uh, Washington, Montana is not in the Pacific Northwest. It's in the Northwest, but 
right. several years there and then Alaska. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Very cool. I have family in Alaska who mm -hmm. kind of ventured up there in the past uh, few years. So it's on our list to get up there to visit them. So that'll ah. be fun. Yeah. So of course, this is the Academy podcast and uh, a lot of our listeners are Academy folk and people interested in spiritual formation and what that looks like in our daily lives. And so I'm just curious how you came to know about the Academy and when you first started teaching with us and why you think the Academy and, and the work that we offer and practice is important in the world. I first learned about the Academy, I think in 1996 or 97. Um, it, uh, was was young then and uh, a friend of mine told me about it and said you should teach in the academy and I said well they would have to invite me to you know kind of thing I was uh, fairly new out of seminary but I did a lot of work in spiritual formation in seminary and then of course when I went on to my doctoral program I did integrated work between spirituality and systematic theology so I've been aware of the academy all this time but it wasn't until about uh, I think it was 2010, so it was a decade ago, uh, they contacted me and invited me to teach uh, in my first academy experience, and it was in Oklahoma at, um, I think it was called Canyon Camp and Retreat Center, is that right, Canyon? It's, it's down in a canyon, there's no cell signal in there, you have to climb up the... Oh, wow, yeah. ...to check your messages once a day, <laughs> but, uh, and I taught with Ray Buckley, um, and yeah. I was completely hooked. <laughs> it was the most wonderful experience. And I've taught in the academy every year since then, um, usually multiple times a year, sometimes more than others, according to my schedule. But I love the academy because what it has done uh, throughout the uh, time that it has existed uh, for clergy, it has helped to supplement um, what was lacking in so many people's uh, theological formation, uh, insufficient attention was paid to spiritual formation in, when they went to seminary. And so they got into ministry and realized they were burning out, realized they hadn't learned a deep contemplative practice. There was this gap and there are reasons for that gap that I won't get into. It's beyond the scope of our conversation today, but um, they found the academy providing for them that contemplative uh, space and skills, the history of spirituality and how all this ties together and, and, and even the practices, the daily practices in a five-day or a two-year academy uh, with observing hours of prayer and time for solitude and so on. So for clergy, it's very valuable. Um, but for lay people too, uh, so many yeah. people have a hunger to go deeper in their formation and want to be able to connect their deep spirituality and life of prayer with a life of service in their neighborhood and beyond. And so you find these emphases in the academy. So, uh, so I, I really love it for all of those reasons. And um, I've also loved teaching in it because um, I meet the most wonderful people, not only among the students, you just meet wonderful people and I have relationships with so many people now that are ongoing that I met who were students in an academy, but also um, these beautiful colleagues who become dear friends 
um, people like Ray Buckley were dear friends and Bishop uh, Hisu Jung and, you know, a number of other people yeah. that I've taught with. The, the teaching experience has been uh, extraordinary in how, like, never once have I contacted the other faculty person I'm going to teach with and made a secret plan to dovetail what we're teaching, right? Right, but, right. But it always works out that way. It always works out like, wow, this is amazing. Mm. And, you know, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So teaching in the academy is a joy as mm. well. Yeah. That's lovely to hear you say that. And my experience as uh, a participant, I've been participating in a two-year, uh, along with my work uh, with the academy, is, is just that, that it wasn't like this, you know, the faculty got together and had this amazing plan for how they were going to go back and forth. It just showed up in this really beautiful way, as you said, a gift of the spirit. And, and that's been a lovely thing to just witness and, and mm-hmm. bask, bask in the light of that is, is how I've, I've felt when I've been there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, because of your experience teaching and being in online spaces, I'm curious if you have any wisdom or thoughts about what it looks like to offer spiritual formation online and maybe how you are doing that and what does it look like to really find embodied practice and, and the rhythm, the rhythms that the Academy offers online and in this kind of virtual space that we're now inhabiting. Sure. Um, Well, I do uh, serve as a spiritual director to a small number of people, and I uh, do those sessions online now using Zoom. I find that I prefer that to telephone, although I've done spiritual direction on the phone at times, but I like for us to see each other and even to, to create a hospitable space with background. So like I probably wouldn't do spiritual direction with this background, I've got my printer and a map of the United States, <laughs> you know, my <laughs> desk. <laughs> but um, you can set up a space for your spiritual direction sessions um, or, your, or your spiritual companioning sessions, however you prefer to name these. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have a candle. You can have a prayer bowl. You can be outdoors. In a, I, I had a session yesterday with someone, and it was a, a sunny day out. I went out on the, on the deck and set up my equipment. And there was this beautiful backdrop of forest. You could hear birds. And, uh, and it was just a nice space for our conversation. Uh, we have a group that meets at, here at Spring Forest physically, or started meeting before the, <laughs> the quarantine. And we now meet via Zoom. It's a monthly group called Breathe. Hmm. It's a part of our uh, new church start. We have a church called the Church at Spring Forest, which is a decentralized network of neighborhood gatherings that have a a missional focus, uh, especially around um, supporting refugees and immigrants. Um, Anyway, one of the groups that is part of our church now is called Breathe, and it's open to people from anywhere. It's not limited to people from our church. So um, we gather once a month. Uh, Some of us like to eat together before we have our spiritual conversation and practices so we, those of us that want to eat together, uh, 
appear at the given time and we have our bowl of soup and our bread uh. and say a blessing and we eat and we just talk about life and then everybody else joins at the appointed hour and we take turns leading there are a number of people in this group who are experienced uh, in spiritual formation they're experienced uh, pastors or spiritual directors um, catholic and protestant and we take about an hour maybe a little more than an hour and uh, we check in with each other how are things going then the person who's leading for that night um, provides us with some some guidance or talks a little bit it's not a talking head situation and then we do our practice together and so um, uh, we had a guest last week when we had our monthly group uh, I had invited Dr. Ruben Habito from Perkins School of Theology mm -hmm. to talk to us about the practice of breathing as the spiritual practice since uh, our, our group is called Breathe. Mm -hmm. And we're all you know, in this coronavirus time trying to catch our breaths and figure out how to stay centered in the midst of everything. So he provided us with some wonderful input. And then we had a breathing experience together, a breath, breath prayer uh, together with him on zoom and uh, and then and, and it was very beautiful and very meaningful so um next month uh the person who's going to lead is a sister with the immaculate heart of mary community and she's a veteran spiritual director and then the month after that we have an artist who's also trained in spiritual formation so we're finding that we can do these things online we just have to be a little bit creative Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a deep invitation to creativity that I'm sen sensing in, in my own life of, okay, how can I think about this differently and mm -hmm. still really kind of achieve the same end or, mm -hmm. you know, practice the same thing. So yeah, that's lovely. And can anyone join those or are they all a part of the, the church community or what is that like? The group is mostly women. Um, no, most of them are not a part of the church community other than this is how they are a part of the church community. Um, right. One of the features of our, our new church, which is kind of a laboratory, actually, we're mm. experimenting with different things, is um, the leaders, well, we have a, a core, core group of people who practice a new monastic rule of life together, and that's the sort of the membership of the church is that group. And then each one of us who are in that group host a ministry of hospitality and uh, prayer and justice in uh, especially focusing on refugees and immigrants of different kinds and immigrant justice and things like that and, and environmental justice too. And so what that does is it breaks down the boundary between who's in and who's out of the church. And now we have this wide eclectic range of people that we're connected with that we do things with to make the world better. And then we're doing all of that out of a sense of our core commitment to hospitality and to giving ourselves away for the well-being of our neighborhoods so that they can flourish. And we do this in the name and spirit of Christ. At least that's what we try to do. Yeah. <laughs> Hope to do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, tell us more about your work with the Missional Wisdom Foundation and this that I'm is new to me in doing some research before our conversation, the neighborhood seminary. So I'm curious uh, how those two came about, how they work together, how they work differently, 
And what was the felt need uh, that the Neighborhood Seminary and the Missional Wisdom Foundation were responding to? I started neighbor. I'm sorry. I started Missional Wisdom uh, Foundation with my friend and former student Larry Duggins about a decade ago. I actually started the first experiments uh, a year before I met Larry. Those started, I think, in 20, 2008. And that was in response to student needs. I was at Perkins School of Theology, Southern Methodist in Dallas at the time. And students were feeling called to take ministry beyond the walls of the church to do innovative new things and could not find ways for institutional support at the time because it was, it was all very new for the, particularly for United Methodist students. So we created some intentional communities of different kinds in different social contexts. And um, I created some curricula and did, did all sorts of things. And then when Larry joined in with me, uh, he had a business background and um, was a student at the time. And so he brought business expertise and together we created the Missional Wisdom Foundation to be uh, an organization. It all evolved rather quickly, right? So at first it was to be an umbrella organization, a nonprofit, that, so we could get insurance policies, for example, to cover these houses where the students are living in community and doing ministry and so on. But in time, um, in addition to a network of eight new monastic community houses in uh, Dallas and Fort Worth and one in Waco, uh, in time, we created a training program. And, and when, when I developed the um, template for the training program, it was called the Academy for Missional Wisdom at the time. I reached out to Jerry Haas, who came to see me, <laughs> and uh, because there were some things about the Academy for Spiritual Formation that I thought I could learn from how the process that Jerry had gone through with developing it, and explained to him what we wanted to do and what was already emerging, and we're trying to keep up with the Holy Spirit, you know. <laughs> and so right. some things about that that were helpful to us in creating this first iteration of a training program. Well, uh, we got that going, and pretty soon we had cohorts of people all across the country from coast to coast, from Alaska to uh, Texas and to east to west coast, cohorts of people who were being trained to uh, both clergy and lay to uh, embrace and practice missional ecclesiology. In other words, the, this... Um, mm -hmm philosophy that the church is there to participate with Christ in giving himself away to our neighbors. So in a nutshell, and it, and it was grounded in contemplative spiritual practices and deep life of prayer. Mm. So um, what, if, if you want to look at sort of the underlying impetus for that, which is also underlying neighborhood seminary, it was taking very seriously the gifts and calling of lay people and uh, to, to be deeply grounded in a life of prayer and spiritual formation so that they were equipped to hear what the Spirit is saying to do in their neighborhoods, right? Mm, to be right. loving in their neighborhoods. So there was this missional energy to it, and there's this contemplative stance. Well, mm. pretty soon out of those um, different cohorts that people were now starting new ministries and doing different things, some hubs formed, geographic hubs were, um, were clusters of things became fruitful. One of those was in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, 
and then we it, there we got involved with a church in repurposing church space for a church that was about to close. Mm. And uh, that's going strong. It's called Hawk Creek Commons, and it, they have a website, uh, H-A-W, Hawk Creek Commons. Mm. And it, uh, you can go online and take a look at some of the exciting things that are happening there. And it revitalized that little church mm. uh, and reconnected the church with its community in some really wonderful, exciting ways. Then a similar type thing uh, we did with White Rock United Methodist Church in East Dallas. It's a very large church building, was also in a, a serious decline and uh, installed a co-working space and a range of other things um, so those are two new kind of projects that emerged. Then one of the later projects that we started at Missional Wisdom was a training program in spiritual direction, missional spiritual direction called Anamkara. Mm -hmm. And this is where we have a link between uh, Missional Wisdom and Neighborhood Seminary. <laughs> okay. okay, so yeah. when I left, when I left uh, Dallas in 2016 to go to Duke, to move, we moved to North Carolina, yeah. I resigned from missional wisdom. I stepped off the board and resigned from everything because I knew I wouldn't have time to do any of that while I was serving as dean. Um, but uh, before they called me to become dean, I had created a whole plan and presented it to our team at missional wisdom. And I was just getting ready to resign from Southern Methodist. I didn't tell anyone at Southern Methodist at the time, just my dear friends knew, you know, of course but I was going to go to work full-time for Missional Wisdom to start what later did start and was now called Neighborhood Seminary. And so I had a template for the um, curriculum and sort of how this would connect to what Missional Wisdom was already doing and how it was different. But the idea was a decentralized seminary for lay people that would especially help them know how to neighbor well. And so it was a different focus than the uh, launch and lead, like launching new faith communities. That was yeah. the other program. So um, I went to Duke and uh, worked as dean for a while. And then we started a, a pilot for Neighborhood Seminary. And then I left Duke so that I could, I, le I stepped down as dean. And then I left after a year of sabbatical as a professor. I left it so that I could lead Neighborhood Seminary and develop it as a freestanding nonprofit. Mm. So uh, so there's a, a beautiful website people can see if they're interested. It's www.neighborhoodseminary.org. Okay. And at this stage of its development, uh, we have uh, cohorts. Uh, right now we have cohorts in two states, and later this year we'll have cohorts in three and possibly four states. And we have interest in multiple states and starting in the fall of 2021. Wow. Uh, and and part of what, again, the connector going back to the Academy for Spiritual Formation as a source of inspiration is realizing the wisdom of two years with cohorts of people who go through in order to have this community of support as people go on and begin to practice what they're learning and it changes their lives, it changes their neighborhoods and their congregations. So... Um, that's that's what I've been up to. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> you got a lot going on. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So you said the you said the phrase um, how to neighbor well, mm -hmm. and so I'm curious: are there 
touchstones that, that guide how to neighbor well, or does it change from neighborhood to neighborhood? Say a little bit more about that. Sure. There are touchstones. Um, I think one way we could summarize them is, is the four parts of the rule of life that we follow here at Spring Forest. The four parts are prayer, work, table, and neighbor. So, and I really think those would apply across cultures, across neighborhoods, social, economic, socioeconomic contexts, and so on. But prayer, of course, is the life of, of deep listening to God, experiencing God, and practicing discernment, right, out of how God is guiding us. Prayer is about finding our true self in God. Then uh, work is about work. <laughs> so, right. uh, and this goes back to the old Benedictine way, aura et labora, right? It's prayer and work. And um, so prayer and work. So uh, doing good work in the world, um, doing work that makes a contribution, uh, working to support yourself. So everybody has work to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, doing responsible work in the neighborhood. So prayer, work, table, practicing hospitality in the neighborhood. So getting to know our neighbors, creating spaces and opportunities for people to gather, get to know each other, uh, find out each other's strengths and gifts. Okay, so that goes into the whole world of asset-based community development. Uh What are the strengths of our neighborhood? Yeah. How can we support the strengths of our neighborhood? How can we help people connect with each other that have complementary strengths? It's very much uh, about mapping strength. And every neighborhood has strength. No matter how um, depleted the neighborhood might be, there is strength there. And that's the place to begin. And then finally, neighboring. And uh, here for, for neighbor, I think of a book that Margaret Wheatley wrote, I, I think it came out two or three years ago, called Who We Choose to Be. And she talks about how when societies are going through cataclysm, like we are right now, where culture is collapsing in some ways and other cultures are emerging, and, uh, and there's a lot of chaos and confusion, she says what is needed at such times is for people who are, who are of goodwill and I'm going to use some of my own language here. People who love well, people who have their wits about them, right? Um, To form small communities for the sake of their neighbors. And these small communities become um, islands of sanity in the chaos. But they're not islands of sanity that close themselves off. They are islands of sanity for the sake of the future. And so they become the places of safety and creativity, of uh, goodwill, of loving energy, and they become the generators, the sort of catalysts for creative thought and creative action as society is going through chaos and we need some places and some people to help us imagine and live into a better future. Mm. So this uh, matter of prayer, work, table, and neighbor are all oriented in that direction. Neighboring well encompasses all of that. Thank you. That's beautiful mm-hmm. and helpful <laughs> as we, like, as you said, as we navigate kind of these new spaces. So 
Thank you very much for sharing that. I'd love to talk more about your book, Healing the Wounds of Sexual Abuse, Reading the Bible with Survivors, which is a re-release of an earlier 2011 title. And I'm just curious, one, why the re-release and um, what's updated about it? How did it change from 2011 to 2019? And then how was it working on the book and what responses have you received? Well, I, um, I wanted to update the book with new data. So for example, there are a lot of footnotes in the book with current data about things like the rates of sexual abuse and uh, trafficking and these kinds of things. And I wanted to have updated data because the book was being used quite a bit across a range of um, venues, including in prisons, women's prisons, in uh, many therapists use it with their clients. Um, a fair number of pastors use it in pr preparing for sermons and uh, recovery groups are using it. And then individuals who are either survivors themselves or they have a friend or a family member or a loved one that's a survivor and they want to be supportive. And so they've, um, and I've received emails from people in all these different categories, like over the years since I first published it. So I wanted to update the data, but I also wanted to um, incorporate a new introduction to talk about the Me Too movement, because uh, when, I, when I went into the second publication of it, the Me Too movement was underway, and I wanted to say some things about that, and particularly in relationship to the church. So, um, so that's why I wanted to do that. Yeah. yeah. So what, what changed? Uh, how did the Me Too movement influence uh, what you offered in the introduction and, and what you had to say to the folks who would pick up this book and read it? The, the, um, the Me Too movement made it so that a lot more women and men too, but especially women, were telling their stories now, were speaking up, were reporting abuse they had experienced, and um, we're learning more about uh, the shame that is imparted into someone when they're being abused, that they, they don't have to live with that shame forever. So it's possible to heal. And uh, there's more conversation going on now about how our bodies hold the trauma and how our bodies can heal from the trauma. It's not just a head trip, for example. So this kind of information, um, I wanted to make sure it got into my book in this new release. And... I also wanted to make sure that my book was now available and known with a new name to people in the church and, you know, sort of in the margins of the church or sort of, uh, they, maybe they experienced abuse from someone from the church. Sadly, there's a lot of that. And I, I wanted it to be newly marketed and newly, you know, fresh cover and everything so that people who need it could find it. Yeah. I'm also interested in your book, uh, The Way of Evangelism, and I'm curious if you identify as a mystic, and if so, um, how you understand what a mystic is, uh, how, how she moves through the world. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, many people have told me I'm a mystic. Okay. <laughs> I've, been drawn, I've been drawn to the mystics from way back. And uh, 
and felt when I discovered them, I felt like I'd found my people. Uh, not that, um, I, like I feel like a beginner all the time anyway, you know, that's just how it is. But the, the thing about being a mystic, and I'll, I'll claim being a Christian mystic, is that it's about opening ourselves to the radical transformation of God so that we can love well, so that we can be channels of God's love. This is why I say I'm still a beginner, right? right. <laughs> I'm always good at that. Right. But, uh, but it's the immediacy of God transforming us. And um, I, I remember reading in Evelyn Underhill's book, Practical Mysticism, she says the average terrier is a better mystic than the average Christian because terriers are present to what's right in front of them. They smell it, they see it, they hear it. Christians are not present to what's in front of us. We've got notions and sort of theories and, you know, the stuff that we want to do. And so, so she describes how being a mystic, uh, being a Christian mystic, is about being fully present, mm -hmm. showing up, and, um, and, and being open to God's love being open to who God is, and then being transformed by our encounters with God's love and who God is. And then through that transformation, uh, the mystic becomes one who is uh, a vessel or an agent or a co-participant, whatever language works for us uh, with God in moving into the world with this love, this transforming and healing energy of God. Yeah. So I'm curious about your understanding of community and how community can help heal trauma. And I'm thinking individual trauma and collective trauma, maybe how those are different, how they're similar connections between the two. But yeah, how do you understand the means of community and healing trauma? And then how has community been a balm and a healing force in your own life? I'm thinking of the uh, definition of trauma. It's in uh, one of Peter Levine's books. Uh, Gabor Mate wrote this as a foreword or an intro or something. He, he says, trauma is not what, I'll probably get the words wrong. Trauma is not what happens to us. It's what we are left with in the absence of an empathetic witness. Mm. So trauma is not what we experience. It's what's, what we're left with in the absence of an empathetic witness or what we're left holding in the absence of an empathetic witness. So there's something about trauma that alienates us and it's very isolating and, um, and it imprints upon our bodies in very deep ways that, that are lodges there in our bodies. There's a really good book by Bessel van der Kolk called the body keeps the score. And uh, he goes into all this and Peter Levine's work too, of course, you know, with landmark work with healing trauma through working with our bodies. So um, one of the things that both of these men have discovered and others have discovered, but they, they, they're the ones that have written about it the most, I guess, is that um, healing from trauma requires us to not only get in touch with our bodies again and to feel again. And there's some things that need to happen with us, but um, the role of community in that happening. Okay. So um, a community of a yoga practice, for example, a lot of people who've 
suffered from trauma. I think of war veterans, uh, survivors of sexual abuse, domestic violence, and various kinds of trauma. In uh, healing yoga classes uh, with a few other people, and the focus is on healing together through yoga, it's a community of practice where we're using our bodies and we're, we're, we're in touch with our bodies, with our breathing, with our heart rate, with what it means to feel our feet on the floor and feel what our body is leaning forward and so on. And we're with these other people. And so the community of yoga practice is a safe way to, to be in touch with our bodies again and to not be numbed out and all of that that happens. Yeah. And with others who are on the same journey. And so we're a community together. We're sharing some values. We're going on a journey together. The same thing, <clears throat> uh, singing in a choir or singing in a group, even uh, especially with simple chant kind of songs. This is one of the healing practices for people who had trauma. When I first um, read that, it was something I inherently knew and experienced myself, but it was years before I read this and said, oh, well, that's why. You know? right, right. <laughs> but, uh, and again, you're with a group of people. It's a safe place. You're making music together. You're doing a creative activity that involves both body, uh, mind, uh, and emotions. They're all engaged in this activity. And so we're connecting back with our bodies and with our neighbors in this communal activity that produces something beautiful and life-giving. It's, it's healing. Mm -hmm. um, doing theater together can also help. It's the same sort of thing. It's a community of people. And with uh, theater, we're acting out roles. Um, when I read the part about uh, theater, I thought about how the Eucharist is inherently a, is a, is a theater. I mean that in the most sacramental sense. Yeah. We're reenacting, right? We're reenacting and we're remembering and it's very physical. It's a way of praying that involves all five senses. It involves our bodies and we do this in community. So there's that, but then there's also um, the healing that happens because again, uh, trauma happens because of lack of empathetic witness. When we find a circle of friends who become like family. They're family-like friends where we know and are known, where we have good boundaries and we also trust and can be vulnerable, where we do life together, where we go on adventures, where we suffer together. Now we're some part of something bigger than ourselves and we're held by this group and we help to hold each other in this group. This heals the trauma as well. So, uh, those are some of the ways there are other things that I could say, but there's probably enough for now. Yeah. And I'm thinking in this time of global pandemic, and as we've already talked about the shifts even more to an online space, mm -hmm. are we able to continue healing and community together? Right. Uh, I think you, you would say, and I would say too, the answer is yes, but uh, maybe how does how do we do that and what does that look like uh in this particular time yeah time will tell won't it <laughs> yeah right that's right it's a journey yeah i'm thinking about um people like you and me who are both introverts mm -hmm. and uh, there are some things about the quarantine that are like at last i can just breathe <laughs> you know there's that yes. feeling of absolutely the, the, the space feels good 
Um, but then there's the problem of the, uh, there are other people living in the space. You know? <laughs> That's right. So having enough space and enough togetherness um, th- where we're living, I, I, I think, you know, not everybody lives with other people. There are lots of people who live by themselves. And for right. people living by themselves, this will have a particular type of challenge, you know, connecting enough, having enough sense of people being there that we can heal together. Um, What will it look like in a month or two if uh, we, like for at our house, um, sometimes people come here to Spring Forest. There are two houses on the property. Sometimes people come here for a retreat. They come for a sabbatical. Uh, We don't have loads of space, but we have a few rooms, you know, and, um, so now what will this look like in two, three months, six months for people who want to be with a community but need some solitude? Will they come with gloves and masks? And now we all have to wear gloves and masks too. If you know what I'm saying, how will right. we do it together with gloves and masks? You're going to have to figure that out. Social distancing. Right. I think we can figure it out. Probably easier to do social distancing and have retreat in a camp or conference center than in a, more confined environment right where we can spread out more but um so for some people that challenge will be how can i get enough people close enough to me so that we actually have a sense of being together Mm -hmm. for others of us how can i have enough space so i can breathe because here i am in this apartment i'm just thinking some people that i know that are like in an apartment uh in the city they don't have a yard they've got Mm. a partner some little kids and a dog and grandma it's oh like <laughs> and trying to figure out how to survive from day to day it's just constant noise and everybody's sweaty you know <laughs> yes <laughs> so for that, <laughs> you can't really have community if you don't also have some solitude <laughs> that's right yes the balance is important <laughs> wow to lock ourselves in the bathroom and no, you know, put the little sign on the door. That, oh yeah, you know, right. <laughs> quiet time in here. Everybody back off. <laughs> right, right. I've been uh, going for, you know, walks. I, we do have lovely outdoor space <laughs> in my neighborhood and and where we live, and I'm grateful for that. So sometimes I just reach a point where I'm like. I have to leave for at least 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to get out of here. And then every once in a while, you know, I'll go for a drive too, because I haven't been driving much, which is wonderful. And I'm grateful for that in many, many ways, individually, but also for the planet, you know, but every once in a while, it's nice to just get in the car and roll down the windows and feel like I'm getting away. And so that's been a, a helpful outlet, but yeah. Um, fi- finding the, as you said, we don't know yet. Uh, right. We're making our way in many ways in the dark. And so finding what that balance looks like for healing is, is going to be an interesting thing and a, another invitation for creativity. So yeah, yeah, we have, we have our work cut out for us, right? <laughs> we do. Yeah. But I really think that God is calling us into, um, it's, 
I, I've long felt like we were on the verge of a new reformation. And I've talked about this in like all over everywhere, but we're in the front edge of a new reformation yeah. and um, it'll change everything. <clears throat> and some of the things that I could see coming and others who are looking into the future could see coming um, seemed for a majority of the church, like, Oh, that's far away. We don't need to think about that. Let's just, go ahead and pick out the hymns for Sunday, you know, kind of. Right. And now there's a way in which the quarantine and the virus and all this have accelerated like a thousand fold the need to move into this new time. And there are opportunities for the church now to encounter God in new ways and, and, and to neighbor in a much more robust way. It's the neighboring factor now that we really, really need the church to step up. And, mm -hmm. and the church is capable of doing this because it's pretty simple, but it's, it hasn't been the focus of what we thought of as church. So I'm, I'm feeling like this is the time for us to learn and to figure out and to, and to now move into our neighborhoods in these new ways that are really ancient ways. Mm. That will be the face of the church for the future. Yeah, that's beautiful and hopeful. And again, thank you for offering that to us. You mentioned in an email to me that you have a new book coming out and the title is The Healing Practice of Celebration. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit about that and, and why you wrote it. Sure. I, I wrote it, um, you know, I made the commitment to write it when things were going pretty well. And then when it was time to write it, <laughs> I was supposed to write this book about celebration and I'm depressed and, you know, it's like, right. I, I, I was, uh, it was time to get the manuscript done. And I was really in a very difficult space because my mom had died and I had a lot of stress from my work and there were various things going on. It was really tough. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I realized as has so often been the case in my life when I'm moving into a writing project that writing that book was exactly what I needed because the practices of celebrating God making all things new, that, that work that God is doing, it's the central message of the gospel, God is making all things new in Christ, that is always bound to grief, loss, lament, and suffering because there'd be no making of something new unless it was needed. Right. <laughs> and so uh, the book is about how, how we can celebrate God's love and what God is doing when we're in a dark night of the soul, when we are in a time of failure, when we have a lot of painful memories, and when we're in a divided world. So the, there are four major chapters. Those are the chapters that focus on those areas. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I wrote uh, from scripture and from pastoral experience and other experience in my life and from current events, um, insights from psychology and so on. Uh, yeah. But that's what the book is about. And really it's like, that's what's going on with the virus, right? And this book, I finished writing the book before the virus came out. So I'm just... Yeah. Hope it, I hope it helps people who are struggling a lot with finding out, figuring out how to celebrate God when, when the world seems scary right now. Right. What's God doing? Yeah. 
Yeah, as you were describing it, I was thinking it's very timely. And as spring comes to an end and summer, you know, is upon us uh, sooner <laughs> rather than I can't believe it's already May, going to be May tomorrow. Uh, that's, oh, oh my goodness. Uh, I just think in your book, of course, coming out in the summer, uh, anyway, it just sounds like it's going to be quite the gift uh, given what we're living through. So again, thank you for that. So just wonder as we come to a close, how you might phrase uh, how COVID-19 is shaping us as spiritual leaders or inviting us as spiritual leaders. Uh, what is the grand invitation, assuming that there is one, uh, maybe, there's men, maybe there's many, right, uh, of, of this global pandemic as spiritual leaders, as people who are trying to remain grounded in God and, in, and follow the way of love? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that we're being invited to do by the Spirit at this time is to go deeper into contemplative practices, mindfulness practices that ground us in God's love, that ground us in our belovedness. Yeah. So prayers that are, have fewer words and more breathing, more attending to the beauty that's in nature around us, more of a listening stance, um, they're very simple but deep, and, and sort of enveloping all of that is leaning into the fact that we are God's beloved. We really need that right now. And then that becomes the fountainhead for knowing what to do from day to day, leaving, living in that space. And then um, I think remembering this is not the only pandemic that ever happened to the human race. There have been others. And um, I, the, the theology of Julian of Norwich is really good for right now. She lived through three pandemics that wiped out half the population in her country. So her, her uh, theology is beautiful and hopeful, wise and healing, and just what we need right now. And there are many different versions, uh, like prayer books with her excerpts from her or the whole full short and long text. There are lots of resources you can find online. Mm -hmm. uh, other good theology things, good theology, good spiritual teaching that grounds us in God's love. That's what we should be reading right now and uh, absorbing. Then um, I think another thing that the Spirit's inviting us to as spiritual leaders is not only to attend to our own holistic well-being through exercise and food, you know, getting, eating healthy food and getting enough sleep and things like that, but in our leadership to guide others in these ways. Um, people are in pain right now, uh, fear and uncertainty. And so people need spiritual leaders who are themselves grounded, who are at peace, uh, who still have a kind and gentle sense of humor. Mm. <laughs> Just to help them uh, say, oh, you mean it's spiritual for me to get enough sleep at night? Well, yes, it is. It's really important. That's one of the best ways to stop anxiety is to get enough sleep, believe it or not. 
And is it, you mean it's spiritual to make sure that I sit down and eat at the table with my family at least once a day and we say a blessing over the meal? Yes, that's a spiritual practice. That structure and that um, attending to God briefly with your family can make all the difference in the world. So spiritual leaders right now need to be uh, deeply contemplative and deeply practical mm. as we guide people in their formation. And we, uh, pe people need to hear from their spiritual leaders an authentic word of hope, an authentic word of God's love that comes from a deep place in the leader. Yeah. I'm jotting down deeply contemplative and deeply practical. And just that struck me as something I needed to write down. So thank you for that. Welcome. Well, Elaine, it's just such a gift to get to be with you for these few moments uh, on Zoom and uh, connected from Tennessee to North Carolina. It's a lovely thing. And I'm giving thanks for the technology. And I wonder if you might have a scripture or a poem or a story or a blessing that you would offer us as we close today. Yes. Um, I think I'll offer a short quote and uh, maybe another time I'll tell you a wonderful story, but it's too long for today. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful, inspiring story that's happening right now, but we'll do that another time. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, this is from Julian of Norwich, and she says that as she saw, she saw all of Christ's suffering, and she saw the universe, and she saw all of these things that God showed her, she says, know it well that uh, love is God's meaning. And she said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. That's what she saw. That's in a nutshell, everything that she saw, it all comes down to love is God's meaning okay. and know it well that all shall be well. And she's seeing God making all things new in Christ. And that I deeply believe. It's a central scripture and a central theologian in my own thought, in my own life. And I pray that that wisdom would be manifest to people who are listening to this, that you too would find that God is making all things new in Christ and you can lean into that truth and trust it. Amen. Thank you again for being with us and we are better because you're a part of us and we appreciate your wisdom and your presence in the world. Thank you, it's been a blessing and say hi to Johnny and everybody for me. Thanks for listening along with us today. We recognize that having a podcast is one thing and having folks listen and engage with it is entirely another. So we're grateful you're here, you're listening, you're journeying, you're engaging. The Academy and all of its offerings exist because of you. Feel free to share this podcast with others. May it be a balm, a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope in your daily lives. 
To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org. Thank you.